if you would like to follow. It's uh, Ruth chapter 1, verses 6 to 18, and that's on page 267 of the Pew Bibles. Ruth chapter 1, verses 6 to 18. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you, as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them. And they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. This is the word of the Lord. Well, there's a wry observation um, sometimes heard in Christian circles, generally when something hasn't gone quite as hoped or as planned. And it goes like this. Jesus came to launch the kingdom of God. He ended up with the church. In the gospel accounts of Jesus' ministry, virtually nowhere is there any mention of the church. We read of Jesus calling individual men and women to follow him. We know, of course, that he had the group of his 12 very closest followers, the disciples, 
And then the 72 others, a second circle, if you like, referred to in Luke chapter 10. And then the more general crowd that followed him. But only on one isolated occasion in the life of Jesus in Matthew chapter 18 is there any mention of uh, what might possibly be an organized structure, a formal grouping that could really be identified as such as the start of what we might now call a church. So if this is the case, how and why did we arrive at this situation in which all of you and I are here today as a group of followers of Jesus Christ like this? Well, we see gradually through the narrative of the Acts of the Apostles and the letters of St. Paul to the, to the fledgling communities of Christians throughout the Mediterranean that run parallel to the book of Acts, we see the emergence of something that starts to look like what we might recognize as a church, albeit in a basic way. The Greek word ecclesia, from which we get the English ecclesiastical, for instance, uh, which came to be used as the word of what at the time was a completely new thing, the church. Ecclesia uh, has as its original meaning a congregation, a coming together of people arising from a summons to a national assembly given by a herald. So its use in the early church refers to a gathered assembly of people, all of them responding to the call of the divine herald, the good news of Jesus a gathered assembly of people who belong to Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. But alongside this more um, technical word, if you like, for groups of followers of Jesus in the early church, Jesus himself in the Gospel accounts and St. Paul and the authors of the other books and letters of the New Testament, they all use a range of metaphors to describe this gathering of believers. They're referred to as a vine, as the bride of Christ, as living stones, as a body. But the one metaphor for the gathered followers of Jesus, the ecclesia, that is head and shoulders above all others in its frequency in the New Testament is that of the family. Taking into account all of the, the different family relationships, there are, according to a, a pretty reliable preacher source that I uh, came across in my preparation for today, 237 familial references in the New Testament when speaking of the church. I'm sure that for those of you who are regular visitors to us here at St. Giles, you'll have noticed over the past two and a half years of my time here, of our time here, uh, that I use this vocabulary a great deal as well. Although perhaps amongst more traditional worshippers, it may be more usual to, find, uh, to refer to a church's congregation I have to say that personally I find that quite a dry word 
when we're describing God's people. Yes, it does encapsulate the fact that we've all come together in one place, but it says next to nothing about the nature of the relationships that exist between each one of us and between us and God. As Christians, we are meant to be family, God's family. We belong together. Although there are a few extraordinarily godly women and men throughout Christian history who've lived lives of saintly solitude, they are the exception, I think, that proves the rule. So many aspects of being a follower of Jesus are dependent on being in community with our sisters and our brothers, our sisters and brothers in Christ. I'd suggest that it's virtually impossible to call yourself a Christian without being a member of a church family. And in our case, as St. Giles, for very many of us, we'll be spending this coming weekend as family on our church weekend away. That's not to say that for those of you who aren't able to join us, uh, you're not part of the family. Of course you are. But there's something very special about spending time together, an extended time together in that way. And maybe if we do another one in two years' time, which I hope and pray we will, um, you'll find yourselves able to come on that too. It's a wonderful time of growing together in our love for Jesus and our love for one another. So what does it look like to be a member of God's family? I've taken a a slightly long preamble this morning to get there, but it's time to turn to our reading from the book of Ruth to see just what this looks like. We know from the start of chapter one that Ruth and Orpah, her sister-in-law, and Naomi, her mother-in-law, have suffered terrible losses. First, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died. And then both the husbands of Ruth and of Orpah have also died. So we find the three women utterly destitute. And under the social conventions of the time, defenceless without a husband or a male relative to provide for and protect them. They turn in desperation to Bethlehem, which is where Naomi was born to seek refuge with the people of her tribe there. Neither Ruth nor Orpah has any connection with Bethlehem. Although they're related to Naomi by marriage, now that their husbands are dead, neither of these daughters-in-law has any formal link to the people of that town. So what Orpah does in choosing to return to her own people in Moab is absolutely what you'd expect her to do. Her chances of receiving protection and of finding a new husband to provide her with the security that she's lost are far, far greater there amongst her own people. So she leaves Naomi behind. 
But what Ruth chooses to do in staying with her mother-in-law is, I suggest, a fantastic model for us when we consider what it is to be part of the church, part of the family of God. Look at what she says in verse 16. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. This is what it's truly like to be in relationship both with God himself and with God's people. Ruth trusts in the goodness of God to provide for herself and for Naomi. And in doing so, she gives all that she has to her mother-in-law to be with her and with the Lord. Ruth commits herself utterly to be with Naomi under the provision of their God, wherever he will lead them. Which is, for those of you who know the rest of the story, uh, to miraculous safety and provision for both women and a place ultimately as an ancestor of Jesus himself. This that Ruth shows is the sort of self-giving love, of encouragement, commitment that each one of us is called to give to one another as part of God's family, the church. Over this last few days, without wishing to embarrass anyone by name, I've seen so many examples of exactly this sort of loving family life of God here at St. Giles. In the fantastic hospitality shown to both our Alpha guests and those attending our marriage preparation course, in the Seniors Film Club, in the help that, speaking personally, Claire and I have received to look after Esther because Claire hasn't been too well, in the giving of expertise and experience that happens every Wednesday uh, from our volunteers in the Advice Centre to those who come seeking help, in the way in which uh, many volunteers have stepped up Uh, during this past couple of weeks when we've had uh, things crop up and gaps uh, come about in our rotors. People have stepped in um, to support the family as a whole. I know several instances of individuals as well taking other members of the congregation right across town to medical appointments um, so that they uh, don't have to struggle on the bus. I could list many more examples of the different ways in which so many of all of you, our church family, show the love of Jesus to one another. This is the sort of community, of family, into which Jesus calls his disciple Matthew. Matthew's a wonderful example of the amazing diversity of whom Jesus called to follow him, to be part of his group of disciples, and who Jesus continues to call today as well, 
Matthew was a tax collector for the Romans. He was one of the lowest of the low in Jewish society at the time. He was reviled for selling out to the occupying forces. And also, even worse, for extorting money out of his fellow Jews. And yet Jesus, as we read in chapter 9 of Matthew's own gospel, Jesus goes up to him in his tax collector's booth and he calls him into relationship with him. He calls him to follow him, to grow with him, to be challenged and nurtured by him, to be invested in by him, to be loved by him. Jesus calls each one of us into his family in many different ways. But paradoxically, he also calls us in exactly the same way. He meets each of us precisely where we are in our lives. And he reaches out his hand to us, inviting us to respond. This response is what Lily's demonstrated so beautifully this morning as she's been baptised into Christ's church, Christ's family. She's made the decision that she wishes to make a public declaration of her faith in Jesus, of a new life in him, dying to her old self, living anew in him. And in doing so, we have welcomed her into the family of God, into this, our church, and the universal church as well. In the liturgy that we said, we joined together in declaring this familial nature of the church. As we said together to her, we welcome you into the fellowship of faith. We are children of the same heavenly father. We welcome you. We are children of the same heavenly father. We are family. But we're also family as church in a unique and very specific way. We are a sacramental family. We're all members of a family who through the sacraments of baptism and uh, perhaps especially of the Eucharist, of Holy Communion, We stand in exactly the same position in relation to God, our Heavenly Father. Each one of us before God is broken against the life that He would wish for us. Each one of us is a failure against the standard that He showed for us in the person of Jesus. Each one of us is a sinner. We come to the communion rail in exactly the same posture, each one of us relative to our Heavenly Father. So, so far short of what his plan and his desire is for each one of us. And yet through the person of Jesus who stands in the place of each one of us, before his father and our father. We are all through the death and resurrection of this same Jesus Christ and the miracle of God's mercy and grace. 
we are all equally redeemed and equally part of God's glorious family. I began this morning with something of a jokey saying about apparently how far the reality of the church falls short of the kingdom that Jesus came to proclaim. Those of you who will be going on the church weekend away, uh, and also for those of you who aren't able to do so, you can uh, see this on the St. Giles YouTube channel, of which there's details in the church weekend away booklet. Those of you uh, who are going, you'll get to hear, um, you'll have the opportunity to hear our guest speaker, uh, Richard Wilson, share his thoughts on how we might live as citizens of the kingdom. If we follow Jesus together in the power of the Holy Spirit, with his joy and his passion, his grace and his love, then we may truly be able to declare. In the words of Bishop Leslie Newbegin, that our church, the church, the family of God here on earth, can be a sign and can be an instrument and can be a foretaste of that kingdom. The family of God ultimately and eternally realised with our Heavenly Father. For all this, we humbly pray in Jesus' name. Amen.